The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Good morning. How are you guys? Good, good. Real quickly, I am the pastor of worship here at Story City, and I just got to be led by my brother Andy this morning. I just want to tell you guys, we have an incredible luxury at this church that when I step up to preach, we have an A++ worship leader that steps in. I just want to honor my brother. I'm grateful for him. Thank you, Andy. Love you, man. Uh, We are in the fifth week, I believe, of our series called I Am, and uh, we're looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So if you're new to church, new to scriptures, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven statements, and he says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. We just showed him. And these are ways that we can get to know Jesus, know who he is, know what he's like. Did you know that there is a way to know without actually knowing Did you know that there is a type of knowing that isn't actually knowing? Here's what I mean. Um, You could get online today. You may not know me. You may know me. You may not know me. You could get online today and go onto my Instagram or my Facebook and look up facts about my life. You could stalk me if you wanted to. And you could find out all sorts of things about me. You could find out that I have a gorgeous wife that I catfished. Um, you You could find out that I have beautiful girls that if anyone ever laid a finger on them, I would gladly attempt to beat them and likely fail. Um, you, could, you could find out where I grew up, what sort of hobbies I like. You could find out that I play guitar. You could find out that I likely have to wear SPF above the grade of 60. Um, you could find out all sorts of things about me by looking at my Facebook, but all you would be able to accumulate is facts about me. You would have this sort of impersonal knowledge about Tyler Miller. You'd be able to know about me, but you wouldn't really know me. You know what would have to happen in order for me and you to really know each other? We'd have to go out for coffee. We'd have to go out for dinner. I'd have to invite you into my home to sit over dinner. I'd have to open up my heart to you. I have to share with you my struggles and my joys, my fears and my hopes. I have to give you insight into who I am. I have to let you in. And when I do, you would be able to move from this sort of impersonal I know about Tyler into the realm of I know Tyler. Like I know who he is. I know what his heart beats for. I know what he's like. That's true for me and you. You think about it. There's all sorts of people in this world you know about. I know about Tiger Woods who may win the Masters today. Come on, Tiger. I know about Tiger Woods, but I don't know Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods doesn't know me. There's a difference between impersonal knowledge and personal knowledge. And I say that this morning because I think there may be a lot of us in this room this morning, right now, that have this sort of impersonal, detached knowledge about Jesus. Like you know a lot of facts about Jesus. You've read the stories. You've opened the Bible a few times. You could tell me factual things about Jesus, but you've never actually connected to Jesus' heart. You've never actually been in intimacy with Jesus in prayer, communed with him in his word where he's spoken life into you, where his breath has filled you and sent you out a different person from time and communion with him. You may not have this personal knowledge of Jesus. And so what Jesus does in the gospel of John as he opens himself up, he says, this is who I am. You don't just have to wonder who I am. You don't have to wonder what my heart beats for. You don't have to wonder what I care about. You don't have to wonder about my character. I'm I'm letting you in. That's what Jesus has done for us in these I am statements. And perhaps there's another group of you here who think you have an impersonal, impersonal knowledge of Jesus. But in reality, even the facts that you think you know about Jesus are misinformed. The version of Jesus in your head is not the factual, historical theologically deep and rich and true 
Jesus. I was uh, just preparing this morning. I got evidence of this. I, I, I went to a coffee shop to look over my notes one last time, and I'm sitting there, and a guy walks in, and he sits down to next, next to me. It's all true. He sits down next to me. He's like, hey, my name is Austin. I see you reading your Bible. I was like, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm going to preach this morning. He's like, hey, listen, bro, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to grow your church. <laughs> I was like, what, what you got for me, Austin? <laughs> And he told me, he gave me his input on, I need, to, I need to just give truth, I need to give truth. I was like, amen, Austin, that's right, I do need to give truth, you're right, and that's what I'm going to do my very best to do. And then I'm overhearing, and there's four people sitting at a table next to me, and I can hear them talking, and they're talking about cancer, and one of them's sick. And, and, it's their, and so I got up as I was leaving, and Lord, just lay my heart, just say hi to him. So I, I get up from my table, and I said, can I let you guys know, I just overheard the conversation this morning, I'm sorry that you're sick, and I want you to know that I'm going to be praying for you. And they looked at me like I stank. Like, it was immediately like, oh, thank you, you're making us awkward, please leave us alone, but that's okay, you can pray for us. And I just got to see that there's, there's this divide around Jesus. It's just the reality, like, there are going to be people that see Jesus as beautiful, and there are going to be people that the aroma of Jesus is a stench, but my question is this, have you seen the real Jesus? Before you choose to push him away, before you choose to put up walls and say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, have you seen the real Jesus? Have you opened scripture and actually connected with the heart of the true Jesus, of the grace and mercy that he offers? Because the Bible promises us in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says this, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, the true Jesus, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that Spirit will work in us to make us more like Jesus this morning, if we're seeking Jesus in truth. So in our text in John 14 today, Jesus is gonna tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. That's who Jesus is gonna say that he is. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I am the only way, and I am the only truth, and I am the only life, and it's the only way that you can be reconciled to the Father and find the peace and the eternal home that you long for. But let's put some context around these words. We did this last week. You may have been here. I quoted some movies. I'm not gonna do that this week. But... But I just wanted us to recognize Jesus wasn't speaking these words into a vacuum. Like this was a real moment in time. He's speaking these words. And in, in this week in our text, we're in what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is with his disciples one final time. He's walked with these men for three years. He's loved them. He's known them. He's entrusted himself to them. He's made himself vulnerable to them. There is personal, deep, meaningful knowledge, and Jesus is sharing one final meal with the people he loves the most on planet earth before he is led to the garden where he would bleed sweat blood because of the recognition that separation from the father is coming at the cross where he would be led to the cross where he would spread his arms and die in our place on the cross and he's got this one last moment with the people he loves the most one moment Have you had special moments in your life like that where you just know every second counts, every moment counts? Let's try to get into the frame of mind that Jesus is in as he shares these words, that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. In his godness, he knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows where he's headed. He knows what's coming. And and in John 13, 21, he he looks at Judas And he says, Judas, you're going to betray me. And John 13, 21 tells us that he's troubled deeply in spirit when he says that. Like, think about this. God troubled in spirit. Like, he's troubled when he says, Judas, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas, it's you. He is overcome with this feeling of being troubled. 
which is encouraging in a sense, God, it tells me this. There's a way in this life to be troubled that's not sinful because Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He was perfect, and yet we're told he's troubled. So there's a good and a right way to be troubled and grieved. So Jesus is troubled in this moment as he's speaking. And then let's think about the frame of mind of his disciples. See, here's what's happened with the disciples. The disciples are 12 men just like me and you, and they have left everything to follow Jesus. Everything. They have left behind family. They have left behind all their money. They've left behind clear succession plans, meaning this. In that time, you were born into a family that had a trade, and you were raised in that trade, and that was your security. That was your path. And they've walked away from that to follow Jesus. They have gone all in that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, and they're following him. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in this moment, starts saying some weird things to them. They've put it all on the line for Jesus. And all of a sudden, in John 13, Jesus starts saying some weird things. In John 13, 21, he tells them one of them's going to betray him. In John 13, 33, he tells them that they can't go where he's going, that, that his time with them is short. And then again, at the end of John 13, the very end, he looks at Peter and says, you're going to betray me, and you can't follow me where I'm going. He's looking at this men who have gone all in, who have left home, who have left family, who have left careers, and he's looking at them. He's, they don't understand. He's saying, I'm leaving. I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't follow. So these disciples, not only is Jesus troubled in spirit, but these disciples are deeply troubled. They're scared. They're doubting. They're anxious. They don't understand. So we've got this this setting where Jesus in this holy way is troubled. He's grieved because he knows the cost he's going to pay. And his disciples are troubled because they're scared and they're anxious. They've left their homes. They have no home. And if Jesus leaves, they've gone all in. They've got nothing. They're experiencing turmoil. Inner turmoil, deep inner turmoil, fear, anxiety, doubt, instability, the feeling of being vulnerable, the feeling of being out of control, the feeling of being on edge. And I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know what's going on in your heart today. I don't know what fears and turmoils and conflicts you carried into church with you this morning. But what I do know this morning is the things in me that cause turmoil. I know the things that get me worked up, that get me anxious, that get me fearful, and I don't think we're that different. And I also have some view in this text into the things as we just discussed that the disciples are feeling turmoil about. The disciples want to know, Jesus, are you going to keep us, keep us safe? Can you get us home? Can you keep us safe? Why are you abandoning us? Jesus, will you please stop talking in riddles and give it to me straight? Has anyone ever felt that way with God? God, will you just, just let me know? Just, just give me an answer clear and plain. Like These are all the things the disciples are feeling. If you'll allow it, um, let me share some things. I wrote out a list for me. A few things that lead me to that feeling of anxiety, of feeling out of control, of inner turmoil. And maybe just as I, this week, in studying the disciples and their turmoil, was able to resonate and say, yes, I get it. I get those feelings. Maybe you'll hear in mind some things you resonate with, or maybe you'll just think I'm a basket case, and I'm okay with that. Uh, one thing that causes me inner turmoil in life, anxiety, stress, is relational strain and discord. Broken relationships. Sometimes it's in my family when I'm hurt, when my family hurts me, when we just can't seem to get on the same page, when I live estranged from people that I'm supposed to be in love with. Sometimes it's just the ticking of the clock and the changing of time and just the way that friends that were once so close to me, just space and life moves us apart. That causes me grief sometimes. But I want to live in a world where people are at peace, where there's love and harmony, and that's just so often not the reality. And that causes me inner turmoil sometimes. 
in my family, in my work, in my friendships. Second thing that causes me inner turmoil sometimes, sickness and disease. My body, the body of people I love, the people of, bodies of people I know in this room right now that are just giving out, that are just not working the way they're supposed to be working, the, 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 just the entropy, the things going from good to bad, the, the falling apart of our bodies. It's just not the world I think we should live in. I don't think it's what we're designed for. I think it's something God has to redeem. It brings me turmoil. It brings me anxiety. I want to see it eradicated. Third thing, societal discord. The age and time we live in, the increasing vitriol, the divide in our country, politically, morally, spiritually, it troubles me at times. It troubles me to see human souls of eternal worth created in the image of God reduced into avatars and ideas to be talked at online instead of treated with respect and dignity. It troubles me that we can't agree to disagree, that we can't disagree agreeably. That troubles me. I want to live in a place and time where we live at peace with one another, and it seems we get farther and farther apart, more and more divided. Fourth would be the uncertainty of the future. A desire, honestly, for me at 35 as a father to provide a good life for my family and watching the world around me fluctuate and change and just feeling out of control of it all. It brings me anxiety. It causes me strain. It causes me stress. Last, last one and the biggest one for me, the reality and the certainty of death. We're getting real this morning. The promise that I will have to say goodbye to everything and everyone that I love at some point in time. Something in me knows, as sure as it's ever known anything, that's not right. That's not the world I was designed to live in. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I wouldn't long for eternity and forever the way I do if it was just meant to expire like this. C.S. Lewis, one of his most famous quotes, he says, if I have a desire in me which nothing in this world can meet, the most probable explanation is that I was made for somewhere else. He says, I have a, I have a hunger for food. And so there's food to satisfy that desire. I have a thirst for water, and that points me to the reality of water, which satisfies my thirst for water. He says, every desire I have points me to something for which satisfies that desire. And yet there's all sorts of desires in me that no matter how much I pour in, I still need more. There's brokenness all around me that no matter how much I wish it would change, it doesn't. And all these unmet desires just point in me, make me want to know. They show me that there's a desire that's not lining up, which means I was made for somewhere else. There's something that's going to meet that need that I can't see in the here and now. And all of these fears, all of these anxieties, they leave me at the same place Jesus, the disciples of Jesus were in, in that upper room. Jesus, can you fix this? What's going on? Can you get me to my home? Can you get me to a place where everything is set right, where sickness and death are eradicated, where people live at peace? Can you make it right? Jesus, what's going on? And Jesus today in our text answers all of those questions with a resounding yes. I've got it under control. I can make it right. I'm going to make it right. He actually says this. I'm going to do it through the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, but he says, I'm going to make it all untrue. All of the pain, all of the sickness, all of the sadness, all the uncertainty you're feeling in this moment, disciples, as you're fearful as I'm going to go to the cross and you're entering into the second phase of your journey. All of you in 2019 that are facing trials, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, and all who come to me do go to the Father, to their true home, to reconciliation with the Father. It's coming. I can do it. I'm going to make it all untrue. J.R.R. Tolkien quote. I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings nerd. 
and uh, I've, I've confessed that sin to you before. Um, thank you. Uh, there's a quote uh, by uh, a, a hobbit and a wizard um, in this in this uh, in this passage, and uh, the wizard says to the hobbit, um, "Gandalf." Oh no, sorry, this is the hobbit. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. So this is the end of the third book, and they just destroyed the ring. Um, Is everything sad going to come untrue? There it is. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And then Gandalf answers, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. See, the message of Christianity through the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ who reconciles us to the Father is that all sad things, all anxiety, all stress, all suffering is not just going to disappear. It's going to become untrue, meaning this. It's not just going to be excused like, okay, God, you made it all right, and it's okay that that happened. We'll excuse it. It means that somehow God is mysteriously going to make it possible for all of this sadness, all of this anxiety, all of this stress, all of this suffering, not just to be excused as okay, but to be justified as right. Like something so good, a deliverance so sweet is coming that when it is offered, when the sun rises, we will be able to see things we can't see now and we'll look back and we'll actually say, God, thank you for that. Because this deliverance has been made sweeter by it, because I see you more clearly for who you are through this, because I know myself more clearly, things will be richer and sweeter because of what we've walked through, and Jesus is going to take us there. So let's get into the text, John 4, 14, 1 through 3, and we'll look at Jesus' actual words to his disciples, and then we'll be able to feel what they mean for us in this moment, too. John 14, 1 through 3, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away, but don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. We'll stop there for now. We're going to go up through verse 6, but Jesus offers two things in this moment to his disciples. And the first is a command, and the second is a promise. And that's what he's going to offer us in the moment as we wrestle through a command and a promise. The first is a command. Jesus says to his disciples, do not be troubled. And what's the remedy to the trouble? You believe in God. Believe in me. This is simple, but it's something we need to grab onto, meditate on, chew on. The anecdote to your stress and anxiety is trust in Jesus. The anecdote to your troubles and suffering, the thing that will sustain you through them, is trust in Jesus, nothing else. Trust in Jesus. What I love about Jesus in this moment, too, you think about it. I put myself in Jesus' shoes in in this moment. I'm the one getting ready to be led to the cross. I'm the one that's gonna have nails driven through my hands. I'm the one that's gonna be whipped and beaten if my disciples in this moment are like me, like, Jesus, what's going on? What are you talking about? Come on, man. Give, us, give it to Jesus, help us understand. My honest disposition towards them would be like, guys, I kind of got a lot on my mind right now. Like, there's a lot going on for me. Um, were you there when I spoke to the storm and told it to be still? And it was. 
Were you there when I stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out, and the dude walked out in his grave clothes? I got this under control. Just go in the corner, maybe do a quiet time. We'll be okay. We'll get through this. That's not what Jesus does. Even in this moment, he's pulling his disciples and he's caring for them. It just shows the amazing nature of our Savior, the amazing compassion that he would have for us even now. But he would bring us to the point where we would say the only anecdote to your anxiety is further trust in me. It's faith in me. You have to trust me. It's a command. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Work it up in your heart. Trust, trust, trust. The second thing is a promise, which is a good thing because often I fail at fulfilling Jesus' commands. And when I do that, he gives me promises. The second thing Jesus offers his disciples is a promise, a promise that he has a place for them. He has a place for them. Do you know what it's like to not have a place? You do because you live in LA. (laughs) And you've probably moved at least four times if you've lived here for any amount of time. Did you know that moving is the third most stressful thing that a human being can go through in life? Behind divorce at number one and murder. Or not. <laughs> I, I assume that would be very stressful, though. Um, death, death. <laughs> Behind divorce and death. I am going to have to really work to land the plane now. Behind divorce and death, moving is the third most stressful thing. So when we moved, uh, we, my wife and I moved about two years ago from an apartment, um, and I remember my life was in boxes, I was sweaty, and I walked outside from like all the stress of my house being disheveled, and people were jogging by our house with their dogs, like <laughs> they're perfectly tucked in lives, just so happy. And I was just picturing all the boxes I had to deal with, and I literally said under my breath as I walked them, enjoy your perfect life. Now walk back inside to empty more boxes out. Not having a place is stressful. Why? Because we were designed, we are people that occupy space. We need place. We need a place to exist. We need a place to call home. We need a place that is ours and his disciples in this moment are feeling like, Jesus, where's our place going to be if you leave? Have you ever felt that? If you ever wonder, what's my place? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Jesus, are you going to take care of me? Are my needs going to be met? And Jesus looks at me and says, I know you feel unstable right now, but I've got a place for you. I'm going to prepare a room for you. Think about this. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's a room waiting for you, a chair with your name on it, a bed perfectly tucked in with your favorite thread count sheets. Like Jesus has a place waiting for you. He's prepared it for you an eternal home where you'll be safe. And he's telling his disciples, I'm going to prepare this place. But that, that kind of begs a question for me. And I honestly, this was a light bulb for me this week. Because I wrestle with it. Because I'm like, prepare a place. Does that mean like up in heaven, like my house is out of order? Like I have a house in heaven or a, a room in heaven, but it's like all messed up. And Jesus has to go up there and meet Al Borland and Tim the Toolman Taylor, my mansion, to like put everything in order. Is that what it means? It's not. Um, how do we reconcile this with Matthew 25, 34? This will be on the screen, but Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, prepared for you since the creation of the world. So how can I reconcile? Jesus is preparing me a place, 
with my place has been prepared, the kingdom has been prepared, just not a room, since the creation of the world before any of us were a thought other than in God's mind. How do we reconcile that? Jesus, when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's talking about the cross. He's saying, I'm, right now, the only thing between you and the house that I have for you is that the door's locked to you. You're separated because of sin. You can't get in. That's what's unprepared. Your house is locked right now. I have to go make a way. I have to go become the way, the truth and the life, to the Father. And how do I do that? I go to the cross, where I'm going right now, from the garden, to the council, to the cross, where I spread my arms and take the nails and all of your unrighteousness, all of your sin, all of the things you've ever done that fractured your relationship with a holy God are poured out on me. All of it, every last one, future, past, present, all of it laid out on Jesus on the cross, the perfect sacrifice so that God can take Christ's perfect record, the perfect life he lived and pour it back out on you and reconcile you, robe you in the righteousness of Christ and give you access to your eternal dwelling. Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you is literal. He's saying, I'm going to prepare your entrance, your access to the place I prepared for you and I do it through the cross. It's not a reference to a glittery mansion. It's a reference to how he prepares the way for us to be reconciled to our father by laying his life down the perfect for the unperfect, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that God can make a way for us to be with Jesus. Amen? Amen. He's talking about the cross. Let's look at verse three. And I go, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So that's, that's the NIV translation. We typically read the NIV here. It's a great translation because it's a, it's a, it's a phrase-for-phrase translation, so it reads really smoothly. I love, I love reading the NIV because it connects me in a way that a lot of other translations can't. Uh, the ESV is another translation we like, um, is, a, is, a, is a word-for-word translation. So it can, be a, it, can, it can sometimes pull things out that the NIV fails to. And I think in this verse, there's a text where the ESV is more helpful. So I want to put this up on the screen. This is the ESV verse of John, 10, of John 14, 3, it says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That's the difference. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. I'll take you to myself, meaning this. This is why I think this is important. Jesus says to the disciples, the place I'm bringing you to is me. The place that I have to get you back to is me. Unity with me, who I am in the Father, the Father is in me, the Spirit comes through us, the the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is one eternal God. The place you have to get back to is reconciliation to God. It's not to a location, it's to a person. The place I'm reconciling you back to, the place I'm preparing for you is myself. It's not a room in, in essence completely. Yes, there's a place for you in heaven, but ultimately what you need, the reality of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The reality of heaven is that Jesus is there. What's the best part about heaven? What's the defining reality of heaven? The presence of Jesus. That's the defining reality of heaven. It's the one necessary ingredient of heaven is Jesus. So what are we to long for? What is all these, which which tells me this, all these longings I have in my life that I'm trying to fill, 
all these needs that I'm born with, the need for recognition, the need for acclaim, the need for satisfaction, the need for comfort. Every need I have is actually meant to point me back to the one who can satisfy it, which is Jesus, who is the essence of heaven. He is perfect, he's holy, and in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What I'm longing for is Christ. God give us the eyes to see it. That the thing behind all of our longings is Jesus. He's going to bring us to himself. Verse 4 through 6. And we'll, uh, we'll wind, wind down and attempt to land the plane here. Verse 4 through 6. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Poor Thomas. Every time the guy comes up in scripture, he's just, he's just getting a, a tough rap. He's doubting Thomas. You know? He's asking questions that you're like, you should know the answer to that by now, Thomas. I don't. I'm Thomas. I'm doubting Thomas. For all of eternity, I have doubting before my name. But Jesus answers him, he says, Thomas, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we've talked some about how Jesus becomes the way through the cross, but what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? What does it mean that Jesus is the life? What does he mean? Jesus being the truth, among other things, means this. It means that he is the only true measure of righteousness. Jesus is the only true measure of righteousness. So how do we normally define righteousness or, or, or convince ourselves of our righteousness? Here's what we do, I think, a lot of the time. We offer to God the measure of other people's righteousnesses that are faulty. It's like, God, I know I'm not perfect. I know I may, I may have had a rough week, but huh, I'm not as bad as Jimmy. <laughs> I mean, have you seen his Instagram? Like, Jimmy, he, he needs some help. Sorry if your name's Jimmy in here. Um, here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with making ourselves feel okay because other people around us are worse. That kind of righteousness, convincing yourself that you're not so bad because other people are worse, it won't get you to the Father. It won't get you home. The only measure of righteousness is Jesus. Jesus is the truth because Jesus is the true measurement of righteousness. Jesus is the true measurement of what good is, and only the righteousness of Jesus in your place can get you to the Father. That's the beauty of Christianity, that Jesus, the truth, shows you what true righteousness is and then gives it to you. He doesn't say earn it. He doesn't say work for it. He says, come to me by faith. Just trust in the truth of who I am. Trust in my righteousness that's already been given for you, and I'm going to pour out all of my righteousness on you so you have nothing left to earn. You're set free to just rest in who I say you are. I give you truth. I become the truth for you. I pour truth out over your life, my true righteousness robing you forever. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Jesus being the life means this. Trusting in the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf is the only true way to life. Trusting in the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf is the only way to true life. The only way. So 
every other major world religion outside of Christianity, and just lift them across the board, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, even all the way down to karma, they all say the same thing, ultimately. It's something called moralistic deism, which means is this. This is ultimately the message of every world religion outside of Christianity. Try hard, try very hard to be as good as you can. And if your good works at the end of your life outweigh your bad works, the stuff you did wrong, maybe you'll be accepted and you'll be accepted to the degree that it outweighs it. Like the better you are, the more accepted, the more loved you are. And so actually this can even seep into Christianity where we do this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism where we we try very hard to be good because we're trying to please this vague concept of God who just wants us to be good and so we can be at peace with ourselves and at peace with God and not feel like shams. We just try to be good. It's this form of therapy for us. I feel okay about myself when I'm good and when I'm bad, I'm a terrible person. God's mad at me and I'm not worthy. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And outside of Christianity, it's the best thing there is. It's the only thing there is. But ultimately, it's a trap. Ultimately, it leads us to a place where we're forced to live these duplicitous lives where we have to posture ourselves as good and put together. As the parent, we need everybody else to think we are. As the Christian, we need everybody else to think we are. As the type of person, we need everybody else to think we are. But we all know at the end of the day when we put our head on the pillow, it's just not true that if we had a tape recorder around our neck recording ourselves for 48 hours, we wouldn't live up to our own standards of good. Just if we were measured by what we said and expected of other people we would fail the test. We don't meet the test, we're not. So this, this, this thing, moralistic deism, it forces this place where we're forced to live these duplicitous lives, where we're forced to posture ourselves as put together and good. But that creates this shame, this hiding, this guilt that we live under, and that's not true life. You wanna know what true life is? You wanna know the path to true life? Admit who you are. Admit you're messed up. Admit you need a savior. You're in good company. That's why Jesus had to come and die. That's the whole point of the cross. We're outed at the cross. We don't have it put together. We aren't tucked in. We're a mess. We needed a savior. He came. He gave his life. We have one. And now we're set free. And the beauty of what our savior did for us on that cross begins to pull out of us a lifestyle, a joy, a hope, a peace, a contentment that is found nowhere else. Try very hard to be good, end up in guilt and shame. Admit who you are, embrace the grace of Jesus on the cross in your behalf. Walk in freedom. Be able to confess your sins freely. Be able to lay before people, this is who I am, I need help, I need prayer. I'm not the answer, Jesus is, help me. I can literally stand before you as your pastor, as one of your pastors this morning, and say to you, I'm right there with you. I need Jesus every hour of every day, and without him, I fall apart. Are you there with me? Good thing we have him, the way, the truth, and the life. We have him. He gave himself for us. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He will lead you into true life. Trust in his name and no other. Don't do the moralistic deism game. Don't try this therapy of being good. Trust the righteousness of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life on your behalf, and watch the kind of person you become. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you just for what you do through your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life because you are the word. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only God. Jesus, thank you that you came from the Father on our behalf. 
thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, anyone in this room that's trusting in faulty gods this morning, gods that can't save, gods with no power, gods that aren't the way, gods that aren't the truth, gods that aren't the life, gods that give the promise of satisfaction but just lead to deeper and deeper slavery. Jesus, free us from those chains. Allow us to be honest about who we are in this place and even more so to exalt in who you are, the God who saves. It's in Jesus' name.